Hey guys, check out Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0, brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp, a fully updated second edition, reviewed and revised by an expert panel of certified Italian wine ambassadors from across the globe. The book also includes an edition by Professore Attilio Scienza, Italy's leading vine geneticist. To pick up a copy today, just head to Amazon.com or visit us at MamaJumboShrimp.com. Welcome to Masterclass U.S. Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. This show has been designed to demystify the U.S. market for Italian wineries through interviews with experts in sales and distribution, social media, communications, and so much more. We will quiz each of our esteemed guests at the end of each episode to solidify the lessons that we've learned. So sharpen your pencils, get out your notebooks, and join us each week to learn more about the U.S. market. Hello, welcome to Masterclass U.S. Wine Market. Today, I'm thrilled to have the honor to welcome Karen McNeil to the Italian Wine Podcast. For many of us, Karen does not need any introduction, but Karen is the author of the award-winning book, The Wine Bible, one of the best-selling wine books in the United States with over 1 million copies sold. The former wine correspondent for the Today Show on, on NBC, Karen was also the host of the PBS series Wine, Food, and Friends with Karen McNeil, for which she won an Emmy. Karen is also considered one of America's foremost wine presenters and the creator and editor of WineSpeed, the leading digital newsletter in the U.S. for fast, authoritative information about wine. You can follow Karen at, at Karen McNeil Co. on Instagram and KarenMcNeil.com. Karen and I have had the pleasure of attending some great tastings together here in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, collaborating on virtual tastings, and I'm so excited to have her on the show today. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast, Karen. Thanks again for being here. It's such a pleasure to be with you, Juliana. Thank you. Of course. Well, let's just get right into it because there's so much to cover in just 30 minutes. And I want to make sure we can learn all about your background and history and then talk a little bit more about what's going on, you know, in current day to educate our, our audience from your perspective on, on wine communications and, and how things have changed in, in recent years. But let's start from the beginning. You have such an accomplished, impressive background. You've seen nearly every side of the media landscape, which is why I'm so excited for this conversation. So tell us a little bit more about the evolution of your career, how you started in writing and specifically ended up in wine writing. First of all, I started out trying to be a writer. And anyone mm -hmm. who's ever done that knows that it's it's not instantaneous and it's not easy. So as a young adult, I, at 19, had moved to New York City to try and become a writer. And over the next couple of years, collected 324 rejection slips, which wow. I, I know it was a lot of rejection, <laughs> which I thumbtacked actually to the wall of my fifth floor walk up in a not very nice neighborhood in New York. <laughs> and um you know, at that time, I was writing about everything, you know, politics and women's issues and social issues. And one day I got this, what I thought was this brilliant idea that I should try writing about food because maybe they gave you samples. And, you know, you can, <laughs> I mean, I was on food stamps at the time. I was really poor and, you know, the sort of the epitome of the poor struggling uh, writer. And, and it was true. They did give you samples. And so um, my first article uh, sold to the Village Voice. And of all things, it was on butter. Um, oh, wow. I know I got paid $30, <laughs> $30 ever. 
And, you know, Did you I get some butter samples as part of that story. All kinds of butter samples. And, I, you know, I went out to the hip nightclub in New York, sat at the bar, ordered a bottle of champagne, which at that time you could buy for $30 a bottle and mm-hmm. um, and drank the whole thing. So because you can't buy champagne with food stamps. Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just can't buy a bottle of champagne today for close to $30 in a, in a nightclub in New York City. So it's on like the good old days. But, you know, I was reading something recently in The Economist about you know, the value of incrementalism, you know, of just asking, 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 asking again and, until you get there. And it sounds like, you know, that's the approach that you followed when, you know, you were breaking into to your career in writing in New York City. Yeah, you know, what I realized, though, is that I really wanted to write not just about food, but also about the whole world of gastronomy and mm-hmm. you know, dining behavior and manners and, and of course, all the great beverages of history. And the four great beverages of history are tea, coffee, beer, and wine. Teach yourself about tea, coffee, and beer. But wine is hard to learn about. Um, and wine takes access, and somehow you have to be able to to taste a lot. And you know, I loved wine. I I was drinking like eighty nine cent Bulgarian reds and uh, one dollar Liebfraumilch at the time. So eventually, though, by by great luck, I I was allowed to taste with about five men who were much older than me, but they controlled all of wine writing in the United States in the 1970s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. And, and they even wrote for magazines that you would think might have a woman um, wine writer like Vogue and Good House King. But anyway... I tasted with these men for the next six years or so every every week and learned an enormous amount from them just from watching the seriousness with which they tasted. Of course, it was my great luck to be invited to these extraordinary tastings because people, you know, wine groups, the the Chianti Classico Consortio and the Rioja producers and the port producers flew into New York on a weekly basis to do tastings for. Wow. That sounds like a pretty powerful group to be a part of, especially at, at that time in, in your career. Yeah, it was, you know, they... <laughs> They took a vote, actually, on whether or not they would let me uh, join them in these tastings. Uh, and the vote was I could, but on the condition I didn't talk, which is unthinkable today for any. It really is. Yeah, that's that's wild to think about. So did you talk? What what happened? No, I, I, I didn't talk for about six years and I tasted with them wow. almost every week. But you know, Juliana, I didn't want to give my opinion. As far as mm-hmm. I was concerned, I didn't yet have enough knowledge to have a wine opinion, but I was mm-hmm. desperate to ask them questions. I have right. questions. All the, you know, years later, all those questions became, in a way, the basis for the wine Bible. That so, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it turned out okay in the end. Right. So that, that silence just created a need for, for what you have created in the, in the wine Bible. And, but that is still pretty wild to think about, you know, on the conditions you can't talk. But 
Did you come to New York with any background in wine or did it really form through the exploration of writing, the introduction, uh, introduction to this tasting group? No, I had, I did not have parents who drank wine. I, I didn't know anything about wine except maybe what I read in novels. I, but you know, as everyone who's listening knows, wine has this amazing ability to make you desire it in a way. Mm-hmm. And I was drinking really, really inexpensive wine, but I loved the fact that wine was a way of kind of taking nature into your body, right? Right. And, and you could, even if you were drinking uh, very humble wines, there was something so satisfying about drinking wine. I I just instantaneously loved it. And I'm actually very glad that I started with such humble wines years before I tasted a great Barolo or a great Bordeaux. But I learned my appreciation from, you know, from from that connection that wine has to the earth. I, I right. love that. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a, a beautiful lens from which to, to think about it. You know, nature, but history, geology, so many different, so many different things. Well, I think we could ta- have an entire episode about your tasting group and that experience. But I do want to get to the, the crux of today's conversation, which is really about wine communications, and and you've experienced communicating about wine from the broadcast perspective, from print, from online, from digital, from so many, from in-person presentations and lectures. There's so many different formats. So there's so much insight and knowledge that I'm excited to dive into with you today. On today's masterclass, our our three takeaways and and the focus of today's episode are going to be on the biggest differences between wine communications today and when you care and started writing about wine in the ni- 1970s, the fundamentals of educating about wine in a virtual, digital, and print space, since that is so critical to the work that you do. And then also, you know, it is the Italian wine podcast, so the wine Bible and Italian wine and would have been some of the most popular topics of discussion. So those are a few of the things we're going to dive into today, and let's get into it. So you know, for starters, um, Karen, you wrote about wine for decades before you created the Wine Bible for numerous publications, lifestyle like Elle, news like USA Today and the New York Times. What was writing about wine like back in the 70s and 80s once you started breaking in um, and really focusing in on that space in your writing career? Right. Well, at first, it was a much smaller world because, um, you know, you had to kind of There were maybe five places you had to really know about. You had to know about Bordeaux and Rioja and Port and Chianti Classico and Piedmont, maybe, and and the Mosul in Germany uh, and Rhine. But as we all know, the world of wine has been explosive in the last 30 years. So your sheer, the amount of information you have to know to be a globalist is much bigger but the Absolutely. other thing I think about is, you know, most of the big original books on wine were written by British authors. And, but even in the United States, there was a, a characteristic of wine communication that kind of, it went like this. Here's all the great wine I have tasted and the great places I've been to. Too bad you'll never get to do it. <laughs> 
You know, I mean, it, it right. really was like that. It was mm-hmm. what I sometimes think of as show off wine writing. Right. Let me tell you about all the things I know. Very and, exhibitionary style as opposed to <laughs> informational. Yeah. Mm. And I think I, as when I was ri- early on, when I was writing, I, I was lucky to also start a bit in television and radio at the same time. Right. And, and for me, I immediately sort of turned the binoculars around. And I, I thought, you know, it's not so much what I know. It's what does someone want to hear? What mm-hmm. would someone find intriguing? What, what would someone find really memorable? And so I've always written in a conversational way. Right. And in a way that really respects the reader or in now the viewer or the listener. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. Right. I think that's especially today, but even back then it's, really inspiring to hear that that's the approach you always took. And I wonder if that had something to do with your own experience, you know, sitting in, in that that tasting group and, and not being allowed to, to ask questions, but seeing the need for that more conversational style and more approachable style of, of, of communicating about wine. Well, it really worked in, in the U.S. in particular, because mm-hmm. in some places, wine is very you know, classist. You have to be of a certain class to allowed to be in the club, so to speak. But that that doesn't ring right in America. We don't I, I don't think Americans really feel comfortable when wine is presented that way. And so the wine Bible became in a sense the first big book that had an American sensibility. Mm-hmm. And and also the Europeans, and in particular the British too, they presume a familiarity with European geography that Americans right. didn't have. I mean, I remember myself thinking, Macon, Merceau, Montagny, like where <laughs> these places? Right, right. So I, you know, I was really careful to not be insulting to my readers by assuming that, of course, they would know that Siena is south of Florence or or whatever, right? Right. How would you say that the, the Wine Bible, when it was first published, was received both you know here in the U.S., but also abroad, knowing that you were taking a pretty different approach from the other wine books that were out there you know, on the market? Well, when my publisher, Peter Workman, um, uh, the late Peter Workman of Workman Publishing, who they've always been my publisher. And when he told me that the first Wine Bible was published in 2001, and I remember sitting in his office and he said, we're going to print a thousand copies. And I said, Peter, don't. I don't (laughs) even have a thousand friends, right? (laughs) I had... It had taken me 10 years to write the first edition of the Wine Bible, but I, all that time, I did not, I didn't expect it to sell. I, it was my 
in a sense, my, I don't know, my, the book I wished I'd had, my gift right. to my world. But I, mm-hmm. I thought, and you know, in those, it is still true that the average wine book in the United States sells about 8,000 copies. So to be close to a million copies is, is terrible. I, I'm still surprised in a way. <laughs> it's amazing. So 10 years writing that first edition. Wow. That's, it was, it something you were working on very full time or was it more, you know, part time as you were working other, other jobs? So tell us a little bit about that process of putting together the first edition. Yeah, uh, it was, I was not writing full time, but on the other hand, the ability to get information was much slower then. Right now, if you want to know how many wineries are there in Sicily, you can Google how many wineries are there in Sicily. But back then, you had to have what I call, and I still have uh, my golden Rolodexes, right? Eight giant wheel Rolodexes of contacts of people who knew people who knew people. The whole, uh, I mean, you had to be a really good researcher. And, mm-hmm. and I remember because much of the research, even in the 90s, you did by phone and by fax, not by the internet. At one point, I had something like 40 running feet of legal transpile boxes filled with research. That kind of old style research is almost non-existent today. In fact, it was very funny a few months ago when I was, uh, we were still, well, I guess this was more than a year ago when we were still putting the finishing touches on the third edition. I said to someone who, who works for me, we were talking about a certain law in Europe. And I said, okay, so call the EU and <laughs> find out. And this young person started laughing. She said, call the EU? <laughs> and I said, yes, call the EU. They have a phone, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but in oh, the, my gosh. you know, that's the way uh, research used to be done. And right. I will tell you that I still, I still love doing uh, that kind of research in person. I Not agree. There's something so yeah. nice and tactical about being in person with someone conducting conducting live interviews, firsthand research. It's certainly not the most maybe efficient way to, to write something in this day and age. I think it's the way in which the you really learn the information firsthand and truly take it all in. So true. And, you know, the other thing that I should say here is, and I think Italy in part taught me this, is when I was just beginning, and I I was really young when I was beginning, but wine books were very stripped down. They were like, here are the facts about this wine region. But as, as anyone who's been to Italy knows, wine exists in this larger context of history and art and food Mm -hmm. and culture. And it's all that stuff that makes wine come alive. And so 
The Wine Bible really started, you know, it, it has, I don't know, what feels like a thousand side boxes on every fascinating aspect of, of those kinds of things that I think help you to really experience and see a, a wine region. And of course, right. Italy has, you know, it has an abundance of all of that, that kind of richness of culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think when, you know, even for wine professionals that I've spoken with, they look at Italy as a daunting region to learn because of the sheer number of grapes and the regions and each region having its own laws as it relates to DOC and DOCG and and various things. So talk to us a little bit about your approach to tackling a region like Italy uh, when you wrote the first edition of the Wine Bible? Well, if you start with the disciplinare, right, if you start with the rules and regulation, you will put your reader to sleep. So (laughs) Great point. You cannot start there. It's important to know those things. But I think that's that's the part that you tell at the end. It's Mm -hmm. important to start with what we what people know and love, which is flavor. And how wine fits into maybe the larger flavors of a place and a region. And often you can get into there through food. I I was writing something in Wine Speed, my digital newsletter last week, and I said about a certain wine, the first line was, this wine makes me wish I had an Italian grandmother. <laughs> what was the wine? I have I have to I yeah, have to ask. Growing up with two Italian grandmothers. <laughs> yeah. It was uh Masolino from Piedmont, Masolino uh Nebbiolo. Oh beautiful. Yes. And I thought and it was true. You know, I suppose I could have tried to tell, you know, the legal definition between Nebbiolo Lange and and mm-hmm. the fact that it was Exactly a Barolo, but made from the same grape variety, on and on right. and on. But you know, I had several people wrote in saying, I have an Italian grandmother, and here's what she would make with. Right. That was my first reaction. I mean, you connect with someone more emotionally, right? When you put it in the context of their family and their heritage. That's so such a good point. Yeah. And I think the other thing. The other very important message to a reader is if you think about how daunting Italy is, right? It's on the one hand, just even climatologically, right? You can stand on Italian soil and look at North Africa, or you can stand on Italian soil and look at the Alps. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting, diverse uh, country that only became a country in 1861, I think. So when when you have something like that, you have to somehow imply to the reader that they should not get overwhelmed. Don't get overwhelmed. Right. About wine first as a delicious experience. And here are all the delicious experiences you could have. I mean, you could have hundreds of them. We're going to start with 10 of them. <laughs> here you go. Right. Because one of the great gifts of Italy, especially recently, has been the saving of indigenous varieties. I mean, Italy is a wealth of indigenous varieties. And 
if you present that as an exciting challenge, right, uh, a mountain of deliciousness, start anywhere, and but just get in and taste all this stuff, then it's a little, you know, it's, I think it's flavor is something that that everybody understands. And for me, that's always been the first road in to a place. Yeah, I think that's such a good point to remember for all of us in the wine industry, because I think we forget to ask that question oftentimes, because we taste wine, quote unquote, professionally, but to just, well, what does it taste like? I feel like that's not a question that comes up in your average wine industry conversation. But when I talk to friends that aren't in the wine industry, that is typically one of the first things they ask me is, well, what, what does it taste like? And, you know, that it's, it's so, so right and so important that we have to start with, with flavor, um, and what it's going to impart on, on the drinker to, to try to teach someone about, about wine. So I love that you've always taken that approach. And, you know, Italy, especially to me, has a leg up in terms of the cuisine and the heritage being very popular among Americans, right? Absolutely true. And, you know, of course, for many uh, years in the whole century, in the last century, the dominant ethnic restaurants in the United States were Italian restaurants. I mean, that was in the 1900s, challenged occasionally maybe by uh, the number of Chinese restaurants. Mm -hmm. But Italy had a great advantage in America because of that, because people understood some of the basics of Italian food and wine was just one, you know, one more baby step right away from the food. So, right. you know, I also think um, this conversation is important for producers because, you know, COVID, of course, accelerated the way we talk about wine and and all of a sudden, you know, we were a lot of people, a lot of journalists, myself included, began doing live virtual tastings where we would invite winemakers to uh, to, to come on, have these mm-hmm. wonderful tastings. Um, and, you know, a lot of winemakers want to, they want to tell you what they did to make the wine, you know, first right. we cold macerated it and then we uh, and we left it on its skins and then mm-hmm. we made an oak and that does not work well um on a visual medium like yeah. like boom people want to quickly get to well you can tell me that later but first like why should i drink this what is it right take? very what should i be drinking it with how should i be drinking it you know what should i be how should i be enjoying this as well i feel like was a common question coming up from consumers in in that in the virtual space absolutely i agree and you know i see i'm sympathetic with with winemakers who want to tell you how they made the wine rather than what it tastes like because wine is genuinely hard to describe Uh, and for that reason there are no real wine television shows in the United States. There are a whole lot of cooking shows. Wine is is difficult to describe, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't give it the old college try. We we just right. of course, yeah, exactly. And I know that you launched a great series virtually uh, over the course of the pandemic, Taste with Karen Live. Of course, you've got lots of, of clients that you do virtual tastings with, as well as in person tastings. 
So tell us a little bit about, you know, the evolution and creation of that series, how it's going now, what, what you're seeing kind of trending and, and out there in those tastings. Yes. Well, like, I suppose, like everyone in the U.S. who works in the journalism field, when 2020 rolled around and it was, and we all now had the words pandemic and COVID became uh, dominant words in the language. You know, we all thought, oh, I, I can remember in March, February and March of that year thinking, well, this will be over by summer, right? And, and so, yes, business, uh, lots of events went away, lots of in-person events, of course, went away. When summer rolled around and COVID did, showed no signs of going away, I, I realized it was time to dust off the old television and radio <laughs> and start doing these live virtual tastings. So we began uh, doing them quite often. We, I think we did something like 200 in the first year and wow. 400 in the second year. It was great because I think winemakers were getting the hang of it too. And they realized that one of the best things for a winery is that you can reach a lot of people quite economically. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and if you have a good interviewer, someone who who isn't going to, I don't know, they're not going to challenge you in a negative way, they're going to keep coaxing out of you all of the the great information you know and and their own excitement for the wine uh, matches the winemakers, then viewers get caught up in that, that excitement too. And it is like television. I've really loved that. And we, even though... You know, the United States has certainly been open, quote unquote, now for right. a long time. For our business, we do a lot of video. We still do a lot of live virtual tastings with winemakers around the world. And Exciting. here to stay. Yeah. yeah. I think it's one of the silver linings of the pandemic that, you know, we took as a wine industry, digital communications took a, a big leap forward, right, um, in it, in our industry and, and brought some really efficient, but also great ways to connect wine to, to consumers and to connect people from around the world. Uh, so I feel like that's that's something that we we definitely see as being here to stay. And, you so know, the, as a group, um, I think Italian vintners are terrific because they, um, the Italians and the Australians, both know how to have fun on television. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Very fun. Yeah. So as we come to the close of this episode, and I wish we had more time, but Stevie keeps us on a, on a time limit here on the Italian Wine Podcast. I do want to do our quiz. And I love your quizzes in um, Wine Suite every Friday. I look forward to challenging myself with them every week. <laughs> so Karen, we're going to turn the tables and, and do a quick quiz to you, three questions, and, and please try to answer in one or two sentences or less. So question number one, what are the biggest differences between wine communications today when, when you started writing about wine in the 1970s? I think um, producers have to be more well diversified in understanding how video in particular works in an overall communication strategy um, in terms of how they tell their story. Absolutely. Video is, is king these days and I think is here to stay. 
clients. Number two, what are the fundamentals of educating about wine in a virtual and digital space to consumers? Yeah, I think there uh, the story matters so much. The recipe behind the wine matters much less than the emotional story behind why you, Mr. Producer or Ms. Producer, what is it that you love about wine? Why, why should we fall in love with your wine? What was, you know, what were all of your challenges? How did you, how did you come to create this wine? Mm. Um, I think producers have to really think through their story and why right. their story is compelling. Absolutely. Storytelling is so fundamental. All right. And number three, what is the most popular and celebrated Italian wine, whether it's a, a region, a style, a grape, in the wine Bible? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> Sorry to uh, ask you to choose favorites, but. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's so It is so hard. Um, right the year before COVID started, I uh, spent some time in Piedmont right at the time of white truffles. And I felt like, okay, God, you can take me now, right? <laughs> the food, the the truffles, the tagliarini, the, the, the barolos were just so phenomenal. But that said, I came back and started, it just so happened that it was time to start on the Chianti Classico chapter. And I thought, okay, yes, Chianti Classico. How how fabulous a wine is is that? I mean, it's just has so much phenomenal history. Absolutely. Um, so I think both Piedmont and Tuscany, although, man, the wines of Sicily, Mount Etna <laughs> are so good right now. I know. It's hard to pick one. That was a tough yeah. question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today uh, on Masterclass US Wine Market on the Italian Wine Podcast. Uh, how can our listeners connect with you, reach you, engage with you? We are on all uh, platforms as Karen, hashtag Karen McNeil Co. Co. Uh, you can also take a look at winespeed.com, our free uh, digital newsletter. We have about 40,000 subscribers. We'd like you to be a part of them. And uh, and then KarenMcNeil.com. You can see what we're up to there as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Karen. We so appreciate your time today and for being here with us. My pleasure, Juliana. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Masterclass US Wine Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, hit the like and follow buttons wherever you get your podcasts.